You're listening to Stream of Conscience, Beckett's Religious Liberty Podcast. Today's episode is Pills and Principles. I'm Hannah Smith, Senior Counsel at Beckett. And I'm Katie Geary, a Beckett Fellow. Today, we bring you one of the highest profile Supreme Court cases in Beckett history, Hobby Lobby. It's a story of a family's faith, a faith strong enough to stand up to government pressure, a swirling media storm, and the threat of millions of dollars in fines. We'll tell you how the Green family made the decision to take on the federal government, how they faced the very real possibility of losing everything, and how their courage ended up cementing religious liberty protections for people of all faiths. You often hear, it's not personal, it's business. Well, today's story is the exact opposite. The Green family runs Hobby Lobby Stores Incorporated. And for them, business is personal. The Greens run Hobby Lobby according to their Christian faith. So growing up, I was always in church. You know, three times a week, the doors were open, my family was there. That's Lauren Green McAfee. Her grandfather, David Green, founded Hobby Lobby back in 1972. Lauren grew up with the family business, and now she's the corporate ambassador for Hobby Lobby. So my grandpa got a $600 loan, and they had this idea of making picture frames. You know, when grandpa in the evenings was home, he would be working on it, and then it was my grandma really, you know, during the day with um, with her kids um, would work on making picture frames. And she, for a couple, for two years, it was kind of her working on it and then my grandpa working on it part-time until my grandpa quit his job um, to go full-time into it and they opened their first store and it was a small space you know just a couple hundred square feet and they were selling picture frames out of it at the front half of the store and manufacturing them in the back so you know very humble beginnings they never realized that it could become what it is today so from one small store to how many stores now 750 and counting What started as a tiny shop devoted to selling picture frames expanded into what Hobby Lobby is now, a company with hundreds of stores and thousands of full-time employees. From the very beginning, Hobby Lobby was a family business. And first and foremost, what's important to the Green family is their Christian faith. You know, part of our mission uh, as a company and as a family is to incorporate biblical principles into everything that we do. So for the Greens, running Hobby Lobby according to biblical principles means some tangible, meaningful decisions that permeate all aspects of their business. Some of them the customers might notice. Christian music plays in the stores. And at Christmas and Easter, Hobby Lobby runs full-page ads that point to the reason for the holidays. Jesus Christ. Other decisions are more behind the scenes. Partially empty delivery trucks, for example, never haul alcohol, even though carrying alcohol loads for other companies could make Hobby Lobby much more profitable. Still other business decisions are made for the benefit of employees, like the high company-wide minimum wage, which is double the federal minimum wage. So we're only open 66 hours a week, which is not a lot compared to many retailers. So we're closed on Sundays and we close at eight o'clock at night in the evening so that our managers and our store employees can get home to their families and see their kids before they go to bed. There are also chaplains available to employees on the corporate campus. So they'll teach a Financial Peace University course or a Peacemakers Ministry course on how to handle resolving conflict and a Bible introduction to Bible intro to New Testament or Old Testament classes so that our employees, if they want to, um, it's definitely just as available as an option for them, they can go to these courses on campus with our chaplains once a week on the clock. 
And of course, Hobby Lobby also offers high-quality healthcare benefits for their employees, including a pretty comprehensive insurance plan and even a free clinic. We also have a medical clinic on our campus, which we opened a few years ago, and we have now a couple of doctors and a whole team of nurses that work with our employees that need come in and need medical care. So if they are employees that are on our health care plan, then they can go to this clinic with no copay. So it's free of charge. They can go see this doctor, and, and their whole family actually can go as well. So that's how the Greens operate their business. But where does this legal case come in? Well, the Hobby Lobby case actually began in 2011 when a specific regulation of the Affordable Care Act, the Preventive Services Mandate, was implemented. Basically, the mandate said this. Employers must include certain services in their health care plans, free of cost to their employees. But Congress left the decision of what preventive services meant to the Department of Health and Human Services, which we'll call HHS. The way HHS went about that is the subject of another story. But in the end, these services ended up including the full range of 20 FDA-approved contraceptives. Immediately, a lot of religious groups said, wait a second, we have a problem with this contraceptive mandate. Many Catholic organizations and schools, for example, objected. It's a fairly well-understood fact that the Catholic Church teaching is opposed to contraceptives. And Beckett represented many of these organizations that opposed every drug included in the mandate. But the Greens, their objection was to a smaller subset of those contraceptives. They didn't object to garden variety birth control. That's Lori Windham, senior counsel at Beckett. They only objected to drugs or devices that could take a human life. For them, that meant human life in its earliest stages, even an embryo. As it turned out, four of the drugs or devices that HHS was mandating could terminate a human embryo. There were some who disputed this. But at the end of the day, the drug developers and even the FDA admitted that yes, Plan B, Ella, and IUDs can prevent an embryo from implanting in the lining of the uterus. In plain terms, that means they can stop a pregnancy from continuing after an egg has been fertilized and become an embryo. So the Green family had four options. First, they could simply decide to drop health insurance for all their employees and pay a fine to the federal government for not providing it. But that really wasn't an option because the Greens have always felt very strongly that they need to provide for their employees and for their families. And the fines for dropping insurance would be tens of millions of dollars. Their second choice was to provide the same insurance coverage they had, covering all but the four drugs and devices. But that wasn't really a choice at all, because the penalty for doing that was even higher. Something like $475 million a year. There was no realistic way they could keep their doors open with a penalty like that. Their third choice was to comply, to offer a health care plan that included the very things their faith could not abide. There was just no middle ground. It was follow their faith, or pay crippling fines. But there was one more choice, to challenge the mandate in court. I had heard rumors and just kind of that there was something we had, as a family needed to talk about. To really understand this case, you have to understand how Hobby Lobby operates. I mean, this is a big company with thousands of employees, but it truly operates as a family-owned business. And Lauren told us that as a kid, she and her siblings would often help out at the Hobby Lobby stores, sorting inventory. And as she grew up, the whole extended family remained very connected to the business, with family members making up the board and making the business decisions. 
It's five family members that kind of run the company as the owners, and that is my dad, my uncle, and my aunt, and then my grandma and my grandpa. And of course, now Lauren works for Hobby Lobby as corporate ambassador. Her dad, Stephen Green, is the president of Hobby Lobby and was at the time of this case, too. When the family had to make the decision about what to do here, it was an entire family affair. My grandpa had called together a family meeting, and that was the first time that I actually heard laid out what it all meant and how that would affect us. The whole family gathered to talk about this government mandate and what they would do. We all came together, and he asked my uncle to explain what the situation was with the HHS mandate and how that would affect us. And then my grandpa said that he wanted to hear from everyone in the family. He started with the youngest generation, Lauren's younger sisters. My sisters, Danielle and Lindy, I remember them both very passionately and with conviction saying, even though this may be a trial, that doesn't change what our convictions are and what our faith says about the situation. So we have to stand for what we believe. We um, trust that God is the giver and the taker of life and that we are not in the position to be um, taking that role. At first, Lauren wasn't sure that the family would all be on the same page about the decision. We are all people of faith, but you know we come from different stories and different experiences. But it was amazing to see at the end of the night, we were all in unity and we all agreed that we had to stick to our faith even if that meant you know, what could possibly be the worst outcomes of losing our company. So the Greens decided they would challenge the mandate with Beckett as their lawyers. That meant challenging a federal government agency, the Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, in court. And one of the first things we did as their lawyers was to see, well, what exactly is happening with this mandate? Who is being forced to comply? Right. It was being billed as this mandate that would force every employer to have these drugs on their health care plans. But it turned out that actually wasn't the case. I was shocked when I started adding up the numbers and realized how many businesses were exempted. Anybody with fewer than 50 employees, according to the White House, that was about 96% of American businesses, didn't have to provide health insurance at all. And they didn't have to pay any fine or penalty for not providing it. And it wasn't just small businesses. But many businesses, even large businesses, were also grandfathered. That means that they got to keep the same health care plans they had before the new law went into place. And if you take a look at who's out there, we're talking about businesses like Exxon, Visa, Pepsi Bottling Company, uh, the city of New York. Its plans for city employees are all grandfathered. So all these big companies and corporations, they didn't have to comply with the mandate at all. The question was, could Hobby Lobby opt out if the Greens, the owners, had a religious objection? Well, there was a religious exemption. But it was painfully narrow. And in fact, their original version of the rule wouldn't even let all religious groups do it. It was only those who primarily hired and served people of their own faith. And as many of you listening will know, there were plenty of cases from specifically religious groups, colleges, orders of nuns, that ended up challenging the mandate. It became clear pretty much right away that this mandate was a mess when it came to religious liberty. At Beckett, we knew that the Greens should be protected under the federal law, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or RIFRA. So that's how we proceeded. We filed their first complaint in September of 2012. They asked the court for emergency relief so they would not have to comply with the mandate while the case was going on. Meaning that they wouldn't have to pay these crushing fines until the case had been decided. But the week of Thanksgiving came and the court denied their request. 
So as we were all uh, getting out the door to go see our families for Thanksgiving, we were rushing to file another emergency motion with the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals in Denver to try and protect Hobby Lobby. And that motion was denied. And then... Over Christmas, we filed another motion with the Supreme Court with Justice Sotomayor. She's the justice who gets those sorts of emergency motions from the Tenth Circuit. And on December 27th, she denied it. Loss after loss after loss. For the Green family, this was very disheartening. Still, the reason that they had pursued this lawsuit at all was their faith. And that faith held them up. Even when the worst seemed to be looming, they went back to their Bible. Daniel 3, 17. So this is when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are being told that they have to bow down and worship a golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had put up. And they say um, that they can't. They will only worship their God, the one true God. And they say that they hear that they're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace if they go against this the king's order. And they say, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. So we we saw that as such an encouragement that we have a God who is our king, and he can deliver us. He is all powerful. But I love that verse 18 goes on and says, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So these three men, they knew they had the faith that God was able to deliver them. But even if not, they were going to serve God anyways. This story was such a comfort to the Green family that they put it on a big billboard they could see from the Hobby Lobby headquarters. But they had all of these losses in the courts, and there was this big question. Would they have to pay these fines, which really could push the business under, or not? Well, they didn't have to pay the fines. But it was because we did something highly unusual. We asked the entire Tenth Circuit to hear the case, not just a three-judge panel, which is the normal course in litigation. It was in March. They were able to get a little bit more time before they had to comply with the mandate they had until the end of June. There was a technical uh, issue in the law uh, that couldn't be extended again, so those six months were all they had. And we had done something very unusual. We asked the Tenth Circuit to hear their case on bonk, all the judges of the court sitting together, skipping the usual first step of an appeal, which would be a three-judge court. This was such an unusual thing that when we were writing the motion, we had a hard time finding other cases where the court had done this. So it was a bit of a long shot. Exactly. But in our request, we emphasized how important this case was. In fact, we said that we thought it would probably end up at the Supreme Court. The Tenth Circuit Court agreed. Yes, they did. And remarkably, they agreed to have the entire Tenth Circuit sitting on bonk hear the case. That's when we brought our RIFRA argument. We had asked the court to recognize that this family business had the right to bring a claim under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Asked the court to recognize that religious beliefs were burdened by this law, that the government had lots of other ways to do this. We asked the court that they would be protected from this law by June 30th, because on July 1st, the fines were going to start piling up. And the Tenth Circuit Court ruled in the Greens' favor. We had one business day to go 
before the fines were going to start piling up. We'd all been waiting, and we saw that the court ruled in our favor. It was a really exciting day, especially after having lost all those times. The court, for technical reasons, did not give us the injunction that Hobby Lobby needed. So we still had to file yet another emergency motion and go back to the district court in order to get protection for Hobby Lobby before July 1st. Honestly, Hannah, I'm not sure I'm ever going to get used to how much back and forth there is in the courts. (laughs) I know, but in the end, we won that relief for the Greens. They wouldn't be paying those fines. This could have been considered a victory, right? Yes, but subject to appeal by the other side, the government in this case. And the government was very firm. They said that their goal was to make these drugs and devices available to all women. And they said the only way to do that was to make companies like Hobby Lobby comply with a mandate, regardless of any religious objections. So, unsurprisingly, the government did appeal the decision to the Supreme Court. Now, ordinarily, if you've won at a circuit court, you don't want the Supreme Court to take up your case because you don't want to risk losing. But we knew this issue was going to end up at the Supreme Court one way or another. There were too many of these cases going on around the country. I mean, you saw the Tenth Circuit had come together to hear this case on Bonk. They knew it was an important case. And so we wanted the Supreme Court to hear Hobby Lobby's case. We didn't want to take a risk that some case from somewhere else would come along and come to the Supreme Court and would essentially decide Hobby Lobby's case without Hobby Lobby being part of it. By this time, the case was a national story, and not all of the mainstream coverage of Hobby Lobby was positive. A make-or-break moment in healthcare, women's rights, and religious liberty. A key argument before the Supreme Court, the question it has never faced before. Can a business claim it has freedom of religion? The company line, arguing that insurance policy should not have to cover certain types of birth control. The first challenge to healthcare law in nearly two years. Birth control is mandated under Obamacare, but they say it violates their religious beliefs. Women take birth control as a medication for other conditions, so it is an attack on women. The Greens had become the front face of this issue. The family was personally affected by all the media attention. And David Green's wife, Barbara, who had been instrumental in founding the business with her husband, ended up being the spokesperson, despite being a naturally reserved person. When they said what they really needed, I knew that the Lord had placed me there for such a time as this. But the fact that Hobby Lobby is a true family business helped them weather the media storm. I know that there were times when I would read something or hear something in the news that would be so discouraging and you had to try to not read too much um, or get caught up in comments especially, but we had each other to lean on. And so, you know, when there were days that I was having um, frustration or or um, feeling really discouraged by something I had read or had heard, um, I could call, you know, my sister or my brother or my parents and, and other family members. And you know, I knew that they would understand and also that they could encourage me. Even with all the hostile negative attention, there was a lot of support for Hobby Lobby. People who supported the Green family let them know that they were praying for them and a positive outcome to their case. People of faith all across the country said, you're the ones that are on the front, but we're all in this together. And that's exactly the way we felt. We felt like this was for all of us that were of faith and realized the significance of the value of religious freedom in America and that we were founded on that. The government appealed to the Supreme Court and Beckett filed a brief in support of the appeal. 
And no surprise, the Supreme Court decided they would hear Hobby Lobby's case. And they consolidated Hobby Lobby with another case involving another family-owned business, Conestoga Wood Specialties. Unlike Hobby Lobby, Conestoga had lost their appeal for relief at the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. So this was a classic split in the circuit courts, which is something that always makes it more likely that the U.S. Supreme Court will take up the issue. With the two cases bundled together, that meant two separate companies, two separate families, and two separate legal teams had to work together. In some ways, it was easier because it showed that this was a nationwide problem. You had a family business based in Oklahoma. You had a family business uh, actually from a Mennonite family up in Pennsylvania, and they were both being impacted by this same law. That aspect of it was a positive, but it was hard because just a simple question like who writes the first brief, we didn't know the answer to. And so we ended up having to spend some time and have some discussions with the government and file some things with the court just to figure out uh, who was going to write the first brief, who had to respond, who would reply, when all the friend of the court briefs would be filed. It was a very unusual situation. Lori just mentioned something called a friend of the court brief. We also call these amicus briefs. An amicus brief is a brief that's filed by a group or an individual who's not directly involved in the case. In the Hobby Lobby Supreme Court case, there were 59 amicus briefs filed in support of the family-owned businesses. A huge factor in that number of briefs was the very real fear for people of other faiths that the wrong decision here would set a dangerous precedent for religious believers in general, that you're supposed to abandon all your convictions when you walk through the doors of your family business. There was actually a halal food company who came out and supported Hobby Lobby saying, look, if Hobby Lobby, a for-profit, doesn't have the ability to bring a religious freedom claim, what will happen to us if somebody decides to restrict the way that we're uh, processing chickens in a halal manner? And we would lose our religious freedom. So the amicus briefs included briefs from many different religious faiths, but the main briefs from the parties were, of course, the ones filed by the legal teams for Hobby Lobby and Conestoga. And we argued that no, you don't abandon your conscience when you open a family business. Which seems obvious to me. We're constantly hearing about ethics from other companies, for example, food companies that prize sustainability, or cosmetics companies that don't do animal testing, or companies that only manufacture in America to avoid underpaying workers overseas. And that's something the Greens respect in other companies. And so for other companies or corporations that are able to be generous or want to um, have, you know, some kind of moral standing or different decisions they make based on values they have, um, you know, we respect that. We had to show that these two family-owned businesses could exercise faith because the core of our argument hinged on RIFRA. RIFRA was a bill passed by a bipartisan Congress in the early 1990s that requires a very strict assessment of any government infringement on religious exercise. RIFRA requires the government to have a compelling interest for substantially burdening a person's religious exercise. So first you have to show that someone's rights are being substantially burdened. And then RIFRA requires the government to show that it has a compelling governmental interest and that this is the least restrictive way of accomplishing its interests. In other words, there's no other way to accomplish its goals. What this law requires is a balancing test. 
what Congress said when it passed this law is this is a test that strikes sensible balances. This is not a rule that religion always wins. This is a rule that you have to look at the burden on religious exercise, and you have to look at the alternatives, and you have to look at the interests and see Are the interests here so important that they trump religious freedom? Are there other ways that we can do this to create a win-win situation? Story now as well today as oral arguments begin just moments ago. The day of oral argument arrived. It was March 23rd, and it was a snowy day in Washington, D.C. Despite blizzard-like conditions yesterday, protesters in Washington, D.C. gathered outside the court building. Several members of the Green family made it to the Capitol to sit in the Supreme Court for oral arguments, and Lauren was with them. It really gave me an appreciation for the democracy and the judicial system that we have here to be able to, you know, make a case for what we think is right. Expert Supreme Court litigator Paul Clement argued the case for the Green family. He has argued more than 80 Supreme Court cases in his tenure as a Supreme Court litigator. And as usual, he did a masterful job. Those justices were firing question after question, and he was on top of it. It was really exciting to watch that argument play out in the back and forth between the justices and Paul Clement and uh, Solicitor General Verrilli. For anyone who hasn't been in the Supreme Court for oral arguments, these are not always calm, sedate affairs. It can be quite stressful for the lawyers involved because the justices are very assertive with their questions. It's not uncommon for them to interrupt a lawyer before he's even finished his first sentence. And the justices had a lot of questions in this case. Many were about whether a corporation can exercise faith. You know, does a corporation have a conscience? And there were a couple of moments during oral argument that highlighted this question. I remember Chief Justice Roberts really pushing the Solicitor General. The Solicitor General was arguing for the government side. And asking him if it was true that corporations could bring claims for racial discrimination which it was. And uh, and he asked him, well, if they can bring a racial discrimination claim, why can't they bring a claim for religious freedom? What this was all getting at is whether legally RIFRA applies to family businesses. And once that had been explored, the question was whether the government had any less restrictive means of furthering their interests to make these drugs and devices available at no cost. And we argued, Yes, there are other ways for them to do this. In fact, they're already doing it through other government programs. Plus, they had offered certain religious groups a so-called accommodation. And remember, they had exempted plenty of large businesses like Pepsi and Visa. At the end of oral argument, we really weren't sure how it was going to turn out. But one thing we and the Greens knew was that we had given it our best shot. And after that, it was the usual waiting game. It's usually a couple of months. Every day they're in session, you're waiting to hear the order, and it doesn't come down. And then it's not the next day, and so you're having to wait the weekend um, until the next day that they are in session. But eventually, the decision did come down. And it was a victory, which you can imagine meant everything to the Green family. Today's decision is a landmark decision for religious freedom. That's Lori talking to the press after the decision was announced. The Supreme Court recognized that American families do not lose their fundamental rights when they open a family business. There were definitely tears um, and then prayer, prayer and so much gratitude. Um, Yeah, you just don't imagine that you're going to be going through something like that and that your faith is going to be put in that position. And, you know, after a long battle like that, you just, you know, what else is there to do but to pray and praise God, the one that got us through all of it. 
Of course, it was a pretty good day at Beckett, too. We were thrilled. The decision was excellent. The court said that RIFRA applies to family-owned businesses, and it told the government, we know you can make these drugs available in other ways, because here you're trying to make some sort of accommodation for these other groups. The impact of the decision was substantial. After the Hobby Lobby decision, the government for the first time recognized that it did have to protect family-owned businesses. And so it issued some new regulations that said for closely held corporations, mainly corporations who are not publicly traded, for closely held corporations, if they have a religious objection, then they could access the same accommodation that was being offered to religious ministries. So it solved the Greens problem. Absolutely. And that was the first order of importance. But it also had some surprising and wonderful effects far beyond the Greens and Hobby Lobby. The court's decision in Hobby Lobby has gone on to protect Native Americans, Sikhs, and Muslims. It's a great example of how protecting people of faith means protecting people of all faiths. We are all in this together. And that's why it's so important to take the stand and why the Greens really were heroes for having the courage to risk it all. We want all people to be able to live out their faith. Even if that's a different faith than what I accept as truth, I still want others to be able to choose their path and to live that out. That's the beauty of the freedom in this country. Uh, So I'm so grateful to see that this case is allowing that for others. Thank you to Lauren Green McAfee for graciously granting us an interview for today's episode, and to Beckett's own Lori Windham. Music in this episode by Eric McNerney and Blue Dot Sessions. The Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty is a nonprofit, public interest law firm dedicated to defending religious liberty for all. For more information on this case, our work, and Stream of Conscience, visit our website at beckettlaw.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. This is Hannah Smith and Katie Geary. Thanks for joining us.